3: The Telegraph. the Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Sternley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse frontline reports that Russia is running out of shells, discuss whether the current military situation is favourable or unfavourable for Ukraine, cover the news President Xi will talk to Zelensky after the former's trip to Moscow, and hear more from a conference in Oxford with key figures about the future trajectory of this war.
1: This
3: hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must
0: end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us.
3: We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 14th of March, one year and 18 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by Associate Editor of Defence Dominic Nichols. Later, David Knowles interviews the head of a Ukrainian IT company. They talk about business life in Ukraine over the past year and how they approach maintaining a proper work-life, war-life balance. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the battlefield.
2: Well, hi, Francis, and hello, everybody. So it's been fairly quiet in terms of movement on the battlefront, still very violent in the Donbass around Bakhmut. Today's British Defence Intelligence estimate or the assessment talks about shell rationing now we we know we if you just look at the any maps you can you can find and the transatlantic dialogue center is a good one here ukrainian think tank that we've that we've visited a number of times good for showing where the where the shelling has been they periodically sort of once a week put out put out a map showing the last 7 days of shelling and you can see over time it's getting less and less it's still extremely violent where where these uh, artillery battles are happening, but it is an increasingly shorter part of the of the front and elsewhere around the country that that's being hit, and that's because all the shells are being used up, and we're now into the industrial side of war. which, Well, arguably you're always in the industrial side of war, and it's been certainly in the West. We've just we've just haven't haven't focused on that in recent years. It's been seen as a bit of a a bit of a luxury to have. A huge amount of of spare capacity, and when it comes to consumables, so ammunition and, and what have you, and that uh, the the war now is showing us exactly the the folly of that of that argument. So Russia defense has, defense intelligence are saying that Russia has been forced to start rationing shells and old and using old stocks that are that would have been deemed unfit for use, and they say um, extremely punitive shell rationing is in force. And, quote, this has almost certainly been a key reason why no Russian formation has recently been able to generate operationally significant offensive action. Russia has almost certainly already resorted to issuing old munition stock, which were previously categorised as unfit for use, end quote. Now, we don't know the effect on Ukraine. It would be very similar, but because they've not yet launched a major offensive or counterattack it's difficult to say exactly what their ammunition stocks are going to be like but they'll be they'll be in a in a similar in a similar position this has been i mean most casualties caused by by artillery that this this war was no different to to others and it's been extremely violent over the last year in terms of the uh, in terms of artillery so yes we expect both sides to be to be very very low on ammunition now of course Ukraine have been moving over to it to NATO standard ammunition and increasingly using rounds such as Excalibur, which is a GPS guided artillery round. So it can actually be steered to its target. So unlike just sort of what you know, what's called dumb ammunition, just you know, gravity, you fire it, it goes where the parabolic curve says it's going to go. With with more accurate munitions such as Excalibur, obviously you need fewer of them for the same result. So getting more precise is good, but as as I said at the start, this war has shown still there really is no no getting around the fact that it is a very very ammunition intensive activity a major major war such as this so even with very precise rounds you, you need you need a lot of them and I uh, I'll take a little pause there
3: thanks Tom I just wanted to ask your your opinion on the quite diverse interpretations of the current situation that's going on on the battlefield. One reads in the New York Times some more optimistic analysis from the Ukrainian perspective. They cite the uh, upwards of 200,000 dead or injured on the Russian side. They talk about how Russian blogs have with with very big followings, have taken a rather dim view of how things are going uh, for the Russian perspective. The Ukrainians, of course, are anticipating a big influx of Western weaponry and fresh troops in the coming months as part of the counteroffensive. And the New York Times even talks about where those that th- that counteroffensive may be, pushing east from Herzog and south from Zaporizhia towards Melitopol. And of course, we've also got the news from the Institute Study of War, a research group based in Washington that have said that the Russian military leadership may be trying to expend Wagner forces and Prigozhin's influence in Bakhmut. So you've got that optimistic interpretation versus perhaps a more pessimistic analysis, like one that we saw this week in the Washington Post, which cites the quality of Ukraine's military force, perhaps being on the decline, it's been de- degraded by a year of casualties that have taken out most of the experienced fighters on the battlefield. There's even been talk that some leading Ukrainian officials have questioned Kiev's readiness to mount a spring offensive. Then, of course, there's the very high statistics of losses, which we don't know the numbers, but presumably very, very high as well around Bakhmut, um, perhaps equal to the numbers that the Russians have. We know that the Russians have have lost. And so you've got these two quite divergent perspectives on where we are at this moment, Dom. And I'm just wondering what your perspective is on that.
2: Yeah, it's I mean, it's almost impossible to. Well, it is impossible to know with any with any certainty. There is obviously a great desire from, from many, many people for certainty. here. We want to know what's going to happen. We want to know that it's over. We want to know that, that Russia has been kicked out. Other people have different views i'm sure there is no certainty this is going to be a very long war and once the military side of this ends hopefully with russian forces ejected from the entirety of ukraine's land there will still be it will still be a very heavily militarized area and there will be a lot of a lot of politics military politics to work through so this we're in it for the long haul right this is going this is not going away anytime soon and and our natural desire for information and certainty we just have to temper slightly and try to become comfortable with with a lack of information and an uncertainty so i think these these articles they they both sort of follow follow a theme that we've been looking at and probably contributing to for the last year. Now you could say that, that there's an element of deception going on here because we don't know the sourcing. I think the uh, one of them was it the Washington Post, the more pessimistic one, I think was was had limited sourcing in terms of numbers and uh, unnamed. So it's always difficult to to gauge how much you sh- what how much weight you should put on the the information you you receive. And we always say on this pod don't just take our word for it. Take your information from as many different sources as you can. We try to do that to bring you the best considered and accurate picture that we can. But, you know, you should you should do your own hunting around and look for look for other information. Use your use your common sense as best you can. But there may be may well be an element of deception here. Ukraine and Russia, I guess, could be trying to feed feed the narrative because it, it would then help shape what's going on on the battlefield. There's also the disinformation aspect of it, just so feeding a, a false narrative to try and dishearten the opposition to make them not not want to fight. And you could also say that the, the, the more pessimistic view that was described here could be accurate because there's a very different moral playing field. So Russia is happy to take the casualties, or seemingly happy. I mean, these things have a habit of of all, all seeming, and you'll know better than me, Francis about how autoxys can suddenly shatter everything's fine and stable and then you know, until suddenly they're not. But at the moment it looks as if Russia and Putin are happy to take the casualties that they are for the very 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 limited gains that they are making. So they are making well it doesn't look like they've moved at all in the last forty eight hours, but very small meterage, hundreds of meters a day if that around Bakhmut. And of course that's there is activity up and down the line up in. Um, around Kharkiv and down south to Teherzon, around Zaporizhia and what have you. But it's the most violent around around Bakhmut. And the lines aren't changing much. So Russia, which... You know, st- Russia started this war saying they were the second best army in the world. And a year in, they're now looking like the second best army just in Ukraine. So it's not going well for them. They are not They are not making the gains they would wish. But they seem happy to take the pain that they are for the gains that they're making. So you could look at this... The more pessimistic view and say that's that is realistic that is that is likely to carry on I don't think it could keep going like that Putin I I believe is desperate not to have another round of mobilization that was the only real wobble we saw from Russian society when he started the mobilization that was when Russian society said, "Oh, hang on a second, chum. I'm not. I'm not sure about this." And hence, we've seen him protect the West and protect the cities and try and mobilise from the from the other regions of Russia that are, that are that have less or political capital and less likely to to foment an uprising. Basically, but there, there have been there have been wobbles there. But I don't think he can go on forever. I don't think he can just keep keep grinding away with these untrained, poorly equipped, badly led troops. So. I think as ever the the reality is somewhere in between both of those articles it is it is a very long drawn out it is going to continue to be a long drawn out war you could view the pessimistic side as as realistic but you could also say well this bodes well for ukraine because they also seem to be happy to take the pain that they are taking around bakhmut we think That for every the the stats seem to be six or seven, for every dead Russian, there's one Ukrainian KIA killed in action. And Ukraine might take the view that that is an acceptable price to pay for what they want, which is to buy time to build this combined arms army, wait for the ground to harden, and push on later spring into the summer. So both sides might be content with the status quo at the moment. Both sides might be content with this. The more pessimistic view, as described in one of these one of these articles. So I think it's it's a bit of both. Long winded way of saying I don't I don't know. I th- but I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. As ever, I would I would urge people to take their information from many many different sources, not necessarily to find an answer because I don't think there's going to be an answer to this anytime soon. But to to keep yourself I don't know, inoculated if you like against the worst ravages of of information that can come at us from uh, from a war. So I think the more you're informed, the better able you are to to veer and haul with the with the blows as as they land and and keep an eye on
3: what what's really going on. Thanks Tom. I would echo that and I think Also, something that was quite interesting, I saw in the Washington Post piece, and there's a US official cited speaking on the condition of anonymity so that they could be candid and saying that actually the situation on the battlefield may not reflect a full picture of Ukraine's forces because Kyiv is training troops for the coming counteroffensive separately and is deliberately holding them back from the current fighting. And if that's true, then it may not have this this kind of impact that the, or or at least the, the, the fears, the perceived impact of these losses that we're suffering in may not actually have an impact on Ukraine's capacity to launch the counteroffensive. So that would go against perhaps the more pessimistic line in The New York Times. But I, as I say, I echo your perspective, which is that almost certainly the truth lies somewhere in between these these two different um, angles on, on where we stand. Now, before I ask you about what you heard at this significant conference on Ukraine in Oxford yesterday, there's just a few diplomatic updates I think I should whiz through. I spoke quite at length yesterday about President Xi and the meeting that's going to be taking place in Moscow next week. Now, we've heard another update on this in the last 24 hours since we spoke yesterday, which is that Xi now plans to hold talks with President Zelensky for the first time since the Russian invasion last year. Now, we think this will take place the week after he has spoken to Putin, which in itself is quite revealing. But nonetheless, I think it's revealing of... More fundamentally, of what China seeks to achieve by going to Moscow and then by talking to Zelensky, which is they want to fulfill this role as a sort of global peacemaker of moving into the traditional role, perhaps occupied by the West or perhaps more fundamentally America, in being a chief broker between disputes. And of course, that gives them increased cachet and influence around the world. And so I think we can read quite a lot into this. Now, what's quite interesting as well in the past 24 hours in a story that's not really been that widely reported but is hugely significant in the region region is that Beijing has scored quite a diplomatic coup by hosting a talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran which has concluded with them reopening diplomatic relations between those two countries so This matters because the Middle East, of course, has become increasingly significant not only with regards to the Iran nuclear deal and Iran's role in providing weapons to Russia, but also in terms of the energy markets. And so this is China trying to, again, increase its influence in the Middle East at quite an important moment on the geopolitical perspective of things. I think also it's worth contextualising this too in that this has been a continuing theme of Xi's presidency. He has continued to assert, ever since he took power in 2012, the importance of China in acting as this kind of broker. He's been more assertive on the International Monetary Fund, for instance, and has said that they should um, reflect the, more, the desires of the developing world. He said things like uh, that China should actively participate in the reform and construction of the global governance system and promoting global security initiatives. Of course, we've spoken at much at length in the past about the belt and road initiatives that have taken place in Africa and other places. So this is a broader strategy that we're seeing evidence of here by China to essentially muscle into spaces that would traditionally have been occupied by other great powers, if that's the way of articulating it. And so obviously, we've spoken already about what we think think the kind of peace conversation would look like with regard to Ukraine and anything that would be being offered by Putin or by, by China to Zelensky. And I don't think it would be anything near what, what what Zelensky would be willing to accept at this stage or ever. So I'm not expecting there to be some kind of revelation in the next two weeks. But just the very fact that it is taking place, the, the fact that she wants to speak to Zelensky and is going to Moscow, I think is revealing of a broader trend, which, as I say, I articulated in more detail yesterday. Now, in other news, turning back to Europe, also on this theme of China, it was quite noteworthy, I think, that Olaf Scholz became the only Western leader to congratulate Xi on starting his third term. It was a very short note. He just said, I would like to congratulate you warmly on your third term as president of the People's Republic of China. So not much there. But as I say, it is indicative of Germany having a slightly more nuanced uh, perspective on China or naive perspective, uh, depending on your point of view. And uh, Scholz, of course, has been more... much more vocal in saying that this mustn't become a new Cold War and that this is a moment for the West to continue its relationship uh, undisturbed with China and not allow Ukraine to disturb that. And I say this is another example of him doing so. Some other quite interesting news from Germany, however, that I wanted to cite, which is the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Armed Forces there has released her annual report today, and it's been pretty damning on the state of the German military. Indeed, she goes further than that and says that Germany is suffering from a greater shortage of of weapons and equipment than before Russia's invasion of Ukraine a year ago. She denounced the government for being slow not only in spending the 100 billion euro special funds set up last year to bring the forces back up to scratch, but also in replenishing the military stocks after rushing arms to Kyiv. And I'll read a quote. Our troops welcome the support for Ukraine, although it tears big holes into their stocks when howitzers, multiple rocket launchers or leopard tanks are handed over to Kyiv. It must be clear that the moment a howitzer is handed over to Ukraine, the process of ordering a replacement must be launched. So I only mention this because, of course, this has been an ongoing theme in the last couple of weeks, as we mark a year since Olaf Scholz's speech of Zeitenwender, the, uh, the, 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 the the turning point moment, which was articulated, he believed, by the war in Ukraine and said that this was the moment that Germany would step up to the plate, would arm, would, would be a, a key player in in Europe. And yet, perhaps some of that those promises have not yet been fulfilled. And I say this report is from Germany itself. So I think it's quite revealing about the state of play from the perspective of some in Germany, but of course, not all. Just turning to Finland briefly, the Prime Minister, Sanna Marin, has been accused of offering fighter jets to Ukraine without first discovering, discussing it with the government, the president or the military. Now, she faces elections next month, which is going to be very interesting indeed. And as I say, this is an example of of her being criticised by some within the country for not consulting on foreign policy and security matters, and making pro- promises, particularly with regard to hornet fighters, that are actually would need to be agreed by others parties other than herself. And so there's been some condemnation of her. But I do think, again, it speaks to the strength of feeling within Finland about the importance of Ukraine being not only supported in the long term, but also being supported in terms of the kind of equipment we received. And of course, we've spoken much about the importance of fighter jets. Then if we scoot south to Italy, uh, Russia's Wagner mercenary group is using migrants and refugees as a means of hybrid warfare. That's according to the Italian government. So they believe that Wagner is actually driving thousands across the Mediterranean in order to punish Italy for supporting Ukraine. Now, this is quite an interesting story because Italy has had a surge in the number of migrants, about 20,000, more than triple the number which arrived at the same period last year. And of course, we've spoken a lot about Wagner's influence in Africa, and they are indeed citing this as another example of Russia or Wagner, whether they're acting together or independently, of, of sowing destabilizing influences on the continent. And so I thought that was It's quite an interesting story and no doubt there'll be more on that in due course. And just the last couple of things, the grain deal, I've spoken already about how there's ongoing talks at the moment about whether that's going to be renewed. Turkey have said that there are still talks ongoing about the continued extension of the Black Sea grain deal. This, of course, being very important for the world food economy, as well as particularly Africa and emerging economies down south. In a statement, the ministry cited Russia as agreeing to back a 60-day extension to the deal. And Ukraine have also said that they will stick to the terms of a previously signed 120-day grain export deal. But there still needs to be an ironing out of a final one as to whether to agree to continue it for the foreseeable future or whether this will be just a temporary agreements after temporary agreements but of course the main significance of the grain deal is that it keeps Russia at the negotiation, the diplomatic table as it were at a time when perhaps um, there will be some who feel that, that that this gives them a lifeline that they don't deserve and then lastly the International Criminal Court will seek arrest warrants against Russians for atrocities committed in Ukraine as part of two war crimes cases to be opened. Now we hear that The prosecutor, Chief Prosecutor Karim Khan, is expected to ask a pre-trial panel to approve the warrants against several Russians for the mass abductions of children from Ukraine and the targeting of civilian infrastructure, two subjects, of course, we've covered very much in detail on this podcast in recent months. If he secures the backing, it would mark the first time warrants have been issued since Mr Khan opened an investigation into possible war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide in Ukraine. Now, Putin could, in theory, be charged at The Hague, but because the of the way it, it works there, the likelihood is very slim, as we've talked about, because you can't try defendants in absentia. And it's also, of course, also extremely unlikely that any Kremlin ally would ever face trial because it would require Moscow to hand over anyone with an ICC warrant to the Hague-based court. So, But nonetheless, the significance of this is that the trials with regard to war crimes are only growing and only expanding, which I'm sure many will welcome. So that's where we are in geopolitics. Turning Now back to Oxford. Not that it's a place I've heard of. As a proud Cambridge man, Dom, what can you reveal about what you heard there yesterday? Well, sort of
2: not not a huge amount, which I'll speak about in a moment. But first, to explain what this was, this this was the first what they're calling uh, Oxford Ukraine Summit. It's it was started by the Ukrainian embassy here. They want to make it an annual event, and it was getting senior politicians policy makers and people people of influence to to come discuss a whole range of issues so it was it was the first one it was it was good it was a bit scattergun because i think it was the first one so it's yet to yet to find where it was the difficulty i had was that it was held although I i didn't say this in advance which is rather unhelpful but it was held under chatham house rules now a lot of people get mistaken by what chatham house rules are chatham house rules as in the Chatham House the think tank here based in based in London Chatham House rules say that you can report what was said in the meeting or in the conference but you can't attribute it so I can't I can say a senior comment editor at the telegraph couldn't tie shoelaces together I can't say Francis Dernley tripped over on the way to etc you know, etc cetera, et cetera. so you can't you can't attribute things you can just you can, but you can say what was in the what happened in the what the discussion was so um I'm slightly hamstrung in that in that regard, but it, it was a good tour de force about Ukraine's position regarding EU membership and NATO membership. We spoke about that yesterday with Phil Lubi, who's the um, Estonian ambassador here in the UK. He very kindly came on came on the pod live to discuss that. The big thing there, I mean, the whole idea of of Ukraine accession to NATO seems it seems a long way down the road. I mean, it was it was hosted by the Ukrainian ambassador. So I don't think that's um, that's telling tales out of school that, that he was there. And he offered the the opinion that actually, what Ukraine is being offered at the moment is basically a membership action plan, which is what NATO NATO roll out for for countries that want to join. And he said, well, we've had that already, or well, that's that's what you what anybody could be given. And we're in the middle of a war. We've held off the Russian army for a year, so that they they would expect more in that in that regard. I think I think NATO is a long way down the line, but on the EU, possibly closer to home. But again, as we heard yesterday, and just to just to reiterate it, one of the one of the panelists from a from a very good think tank made the made the point that there were three, even though of the seven tests laid down by the EU for Ukraine, that Ukraine have met for this is basically all around around reform of the judiciary and, and um, corruption and what and what have you. So Ukraine has. They've met four of these seven tests already. They're expected to meet the other three by the end of the summer before the next big EU meeting. However, even then, it looks unlikely that there will be a swift move into the EU by Ukraine for three reasons. And these were firstly, there are a number of countries who are very nervous about the enlargement of the eu bloc to include ukraine because that would allow freedom of movement and there would then be yeah, potentially a huge number of of ukrainians that want to leave the country seeking work elsewhere not not ideal for ukraine and it could have it could have impact on other countries around europe so some people nervous about that also nervous about what that would mean by enlarging and including ukraine what that would mean for the cost of rebuilding and as we've said yesterday the world bank think it's going to cost at the moment Conservative estimate, $300 billion. So that's number one. The second one was there's moves at the moment to move away from the unanimity vote, as in everybody can have a veto. And now this might help in Ukraine's favour because there was a suggestion that actually with whatever relationship the EU has with whatever's left of Russia after this war, if Ukraine were admitted now, they would have a veto over that relationship. So so some countries are saying, well, that's that's a little bit sharp. And then finally there there's this feeling, and it's mainly... One country is mainly Hungary, who would like to hold up Ukraine's accession to the EU to try and wheedle concessions out for themselves. So there's still a long way to go on the EU. But then just to just to close this bit again chatham house i won't say i won't say who it was but but given the, the the recent british political chaos i think i'm i'm okay to say that remarks i'm about to say came from a recent former british prime minister so there you go i'm not revealing the source because it could be a cast of a number of people given the chaos that we've gone through recently but a recent former british prime minister said that It's battlefield success that will dictate the politics and said Vladimir Putin has comprehensively destroyed the argument against Ukrainian membership of NATO. I thought those were quite interesting. But then this, this individual said, you know, and you might, well, I'm not going to say anything else, but this individual said, quote, 2023 is the hinge of fate, folks. This is it. This is the moment. I'm afraid the war can go either way. I'm afraid to say I'm starting to hear that our objective now is to put Volodymyr Zelensky in the best possible military position from which to negotiate. I'm starting to read learned articles in The Times saying that it would be a good thing if we got into position where he was able to parlay with Putin. And you read that in America, they're increasingly believing that Ukraine will not actually be able to expel the Russians from all of their territory and therefore it's going to be necessary to think about a negotiation. That is not good enough. I think it's a complete mistake. We've always underestimated what Ukrainians can do. We got it completely wrong at the beginning of the war, and they proved us wrong. We've learned in this conflict so far that sooner or later we give the Ukrainians what they need, so let's give it to them sooner rather than later, end of quote. So I think it was quite provocative. That obviously went down well with the With the crowd, whether or not that's able to translate into any political heft, given the people that were there, I don't know. It is. It was not a controversial opinion or position to say, as I think you'd uh, you can imagine, given the event. But it was good to see it laid out in very stark terms. But um, yeah, so it was a it was good starter. I hope to do it again next year. I think it will it will evolve, and there will be other. Other you know, fora where these these arguments are thrashed out, but I thought it was a good mark in the sand. It was um, it was good to go and see. It was good to go and be a be a part of. But yeah, I just wish they told me in advance that it was going to be Chatham House rules, because otherwise I, I would have been able to uh, would have been able to tell you who that was, folks. Well, thanks,
3: Tom. I just had an interest, was there much good discussion of Crimea, which of course has been something that has been really a key focus for us on the podcast recently? Uh, yes, there was quite a bit, and I spoke
2: uh, in the sidebars to a. Um, a former Ukrainian defence minister who who said, I mean, he, he said it's going to be an extremely tough fight. Crimea is essentially just a fortified position right now, even though the large part of the Black Sea Fleet, especially the Kilo-class subs, have moved to mainland Russia after the drone, remember the maritime drone strikes a few months ago. But it's still a an extremely tough nut to crack. But the other opinion was saying that actually, we should be very careful about thinking about Crimea, even with, even accepting that it'll be a tough nut to crack. It should not be viewed as a military problem in and of itself, because any fighting there, you might hope for a swift fight, but the longer any fighting lasts, the the more chance that there is of any straightforward initial aims become blurred. I mean just look at look at Russia now. You're into this war that they thought would take just a couple of weeks and they're mired in it. And the same thing could happen in sort of microcosm in, in Crimea because Russia since twenty fourteen have, have moved in. There's been huge population shifts. A lot of Russian people moved into Crimea. So actually, if the Ukrainian military went in there, they would have a tough fight and then they'd have a different environment to so that which they are experiencing now in the country elsewhere in the country because they would have to garrison the place they would have they would be um at risk of partisan attacks plus it's a very different type of of military activity to work in and amongst a large civilian population civilian population who arguably could be trying to flee the fighting either north through the land bridge, possibly unlikely if that's the direction Ukraine have come from, and it's very violent there. They might try and get over the Kirsch bridge if it's still standing. So there will be absolute chaos. There'll be a lot of fighting. We should anticipate that there'll be a huge number of civilian casualties caused by by the fighting. I don't. I'm possibly. I'm not even going to go down the sort of would, would Russia do it d- deliberately again. I think we've seen we've seen that, but just the amount of heavy metal in a small area and a large civilian population. There are going to be huge civilian casualties and therefore what effect will that have on international opinion? And so the the view of, in discussion yesterday was that actually all those things considered mean that it would be, it, it's a huge military and political undertaking to, to, they're not suggesting that Ukraine shouldn't retake Crimea, but it might be easier to think of it once Russia is ejected elsewhere from Ukrainian territory to, to, to then say, and and Crimea because if Russia is ejected from the rest of Ukraine then there's almost no point in, in stubbornly sticking to Crimea so would it be would it then become part of any settlement would the would the politics take over from the the military action what the what would the gearing be but all these considerations mean that it would be a very different fight to that which uh, which Ukraine is experiencing in the in the rest of the country and I thought that that point about the the longer it went on, what, that, what effect that would have on international opinion. I think that will be weighing very heavily on the political and military leadership in
3: Kyiv. Absolutely. And I think, as we talked about before, I can foresee f- a scenario where certain states in the international community tried to impose on Ukraine that Russia keeps Crimea in exchange for peace and significant security guarantees, sort of being in effectively in NATO, but not of NATO, at least in the short term. Now, there are some, of course, who would argue that that would still mark a significant victory for Ukraine it would have survived an invasion it would have the freedom to choose its own future and become more closely aligned with the west say and it would be safe in the knowledge that russia would not be able to invade them again with those security guarantees but as we've talked about you Ukraine believe that Crimea is absolutely integral to both their territory which is true under international law and to their future economic security and i think it's also important to emphasize that for many Ukrainians western security guarantees ring hollow after the budapest memorandum of 1994 which saw them exchange their nuclear weapons left over from the soviet era for certain guarantees which they argue were later broken by western powers so on that basis I'm sceptical that Ukrainians, certainly in the short term, will be willing to concede Crimea for any security guarantees. And on that basis, they will be wanting to pursue avenues for taking Crimea via military means. And that, I think, does sort of go against what the kind of consensus view, as I say, is in the international community in the West, which is I think they expect for large parts of Ukraine to be restored in the Donbass and other areas and for Crimea to be the leftover part of the country that may well be up up for Grabs, as it were, at the negotiation table. But as I say, I think that contrasts sharply with the Ukrainian perspective, both amongst the political elite, but also amongst the people as well, certainly the people that I've spoken to from both of those groups. So I think that there's going to be some, obviously things can change, you know, this is going to be a long war, things that the situation may evolve. But as things stand, I think that's a big, big gulf and one that we'll, that we'll have to um, monitor quite closely. But anyway, uh, Dom, we're, we're, we're almost running out of time. Can I just ask what your final thought is for today?
2: Yeah, I'm going to be looking tomorrow at the budget, budget day here in the UK. Chances are going to get on his hind legs and start chucking money around the place like a Fire hose. We'll see what happens for Defence. There's been a lot of chat recently. We got Defence got uh, we got told five billion over the weekend, two billion to replenish stocks and three billion for the nuclear enterprise, i.e. Britain's future nuclear attack submarines and the AUKUS deal with U.S and australia so whether or not there'll be any more money for defense tomorrow unlikely but we'll be watching with interest and uh, and i love budget day because the whole the, the paper gets filled with budget stuff so i can just sort of sit back and put my feet up and
3: all the rest of it cue a horrific day for dom tomorrow but we, sh- we shall see yes i think it's going to be a similar situation for me but at least they buy us sandwiches here at the telegraph whilst we're watching it and now, David Knowles' interview with Andrew Bezov, CMO of Academy Ocean, a Ukrainian IT company, to talk about business life in Ukraine over the past year.
0: Andrew, thank you so much for joining
1: us. Can I just ask you to introduce yourselves? Of course, David. Hello, everyone. Thank you for inviting me. I'm Andrew, or in Ukrainian, Andriy Bezov. I'm head of marketing and sales at Academy Ocean. It's a smart learning management system that was founded in Ukraine. Speaking about Academy Ocean, my like company, it's really important. We have closed our website for Russian and Belarusian users. And instead of our website, they see just pictures with ruined cities and information that their, their politicians have started the war against Ukraine. So just to be clear, if for,
0: for, so for Russian users and Belarusian users, if they're trying to access Academy Ocean, they get a special different set of web pages than users in other countries would get. Is that right?
1: Yes, you're right. So they won't see anything except the pictures and videos and information that their politicians have started the war. I just wanted to tell two things about our companies that we have done to give you some picture. We stopped working with all clients from Russia. We had some and actually there was a problem because a lot of Ukrainian companies were traditionally using some software from website builders learning management systems and and others and when invasion has started of course we were thinking about the safety of our employees but when some weeks passed and employees were moved from the most dangerous cities like Kharkiv you know it's still in under the pressure and it's still really dangerous city we were thinking with our founder vladimir polo about what we can do to help ukrainian companies to help them stop using that software from russia because they spent money in russia and they as it said they sponsor uh, russian missiles and tanks so we thought that we have to do that and because of it, actually, we never had any discounts at Academy Ocean. you won't see Christmas sale or a Black Friday sale. I don't like it actually. But we made the biggest discount ever that we had: one thousand dollars and three months for every Ukrainian company that will stop using Russian software and that will start using Academy motion uk- Ukrainian product. It's the first part. And actually Tens of companies, different from banks to shops, from retail, uh, were started using Academy Ocean and stopped using Russian software.
0: So what you're saying is, to a non-tech person like myself, you, you've had to sort of create and grow almost a new ecosystem of code, of, of products bec- to, to sort of decouple economically and technically from 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 companies in the Russian Federation. Have I got that right?
1: Yes, yes, because they had an impact in, in Ukraine because a lot of companies were using their software. So we created this, that program and a lot of Ukrainian companies stopped using Russian, Russian software. They not only stopped sponsor Russian budget and, and also they are using Ukrainian ones. It's really. I, I feel that it, it may help us in the future, and actually, it helps them now. Just talking a bit more generally about the sector you
0: work in, about tech, what's the impact of the full scale invasion? What, what's the impact been on businesses in your area and on employees? I mean, I, I know Olha, you mentioned that you know lots of lots of people, lots of companies have have moved west, have gone into Poland, have gone into other countries. So, could you give us a, a sort of overview of how of the last year and how that's impacted the area of your business?
1: I just want to start about why IT industry is really important for Ukraine. Because you know that we have dramatically decreased in economics, but IT industry is the only industry that has grown this year. And also before that, it had some impact on the whole our export but now it has around 40 percent of all all ukrainian experts because there are some problems with grain metal with real offline things but we can export our software and a lot of global companies have their r d in ukraine that that is working here and speaking about our sector actually there were a lot of problems but i'm i'm really proud because academy of Ocean has never stopped serving our clients so we h- hasn't got any minute of our service haven't stopped and our supports were still supported our clients all over the world actually it was not so simple but we have done it and we are ready now for blackouts we are ready for everything i know that in some countries maybe some countries in europe when there is a-, a huge snow there are some distractions in schedule of trains or other things. Actually, when we have missile attacks, we have no distractions on our support, on our servers, on, on the work of our platform. And I know that in the same, in different Ukrainian startups, when the war started, we were thinking what we can do for Ukraine, how we can help it. And uh, we So the second part that Ukrainians, HRs and LEDs have a really challenging time because millions of Ukrainians are moving from the east part of Ukrainian to the west one and they're trying to find a job. It's the people that don't know how to do the job, so you have to onboard them, you have to help them with mental health and other things. So with the two parts, we, with my team, thought that we may ask some HRs and L&Ds, global influencers, would they give webinars for Ukrainian HRs, l and professionals, for free, and I was so surprised when one by one they said, "Okay, agree." I want to do anything that I can, and we created the project called Coaching for Ukraine. Now more than four thousand Ukrainian professionals was there. Uh, there were a lot of great speaker speakers, and uh, the Ministry of culture and informational policy of ukrainian supported us and also two biggest sites with jobs work ua and robot AA also supported us so I, I really expect that it will have a huge impact on the whole country it may really help us to create a new ukraine of future that's the vision that that we have and that the mission that we want to do with the project you mentioned
0: two things there that i think are interesting and worth talking a little bit more about resilience in the and with energy problems and blackouts but also mental health so can we talk about the resilience as you said you know we never stop serving our clients and we you know we're ready for the missile strikes ready for the energy to go down could you talk us through? exactly how you do that? What, what did you have to
1: do to, to get the company into that position? Of course. Actually, blackouts, it's, it's not an easy problem. Because when you don't have electricity, when you have internet, it's hard to work when you're working online. So uh, I, I can answer you with two uh, parts. This, the first part is about our survey, because we surveyed a lot of Ukrainian companies and got the answer how they do with that problem. And the second one will be about our company. So so first of all, a, bro- a broader look at how companies are managing it, and then we'll talk about your company. That sounds good. Yes, yes, of course. When businesses learned how to adapt to sirens, working from shelters, you know that Russia invented a new terror. So, but despite the problems with power, 41% of IT companies managed to close the tasks by the set deadlines. Also, nearly 82% of third companies' employees continue to work during the problems with power. And actually 97 of companies have generators, they have water reserves, they 75% of them have stalling or Internet that can work without electricity. 30% have heaters because it's important because it's winter now, actually. Uh, 41% have autonomous heating. And actually there's other part employees that are working from home. They have charging stations, StarLinks, and also they use internet technology called Gigabit Internet, Japan, that helps you to have internet when you don't have electricity. Speaking about our office, actually, our offices, all our offices became ready, as I say, for zombie apocalypse, (laughs) because it has six different internet providers, including Starlink. We have powerful generator for four floors when we don't have power. We have fuel for that. We have water reserves and food for some time. And actually, after first missile attacks, that offices became a real island of hope of help and stability because it was the only place where you can go because sometimes we had problems with mobile and we don't have mobile networks we don't have electricity and uh, actually you even can contact your relatives but when you're going to office you even you may have showers, there, there are electricity, there are food, there are water. So it's our island of stability that helps for, for every, our people. That's all. So actually, I, I think that now nothing can stop us from working productively. Because we may have missiles, attack, alarm, we may not m- have electricity, actually, like it was a, uh, an hour before our call here in Odessa. But I'm still here, and I can work and can speak with you.
0: So you've talked about the sort of the resilience of the office, the building, the company itself. Can we talk a little bit about, I mean, you touched on it earlier, the, the mental health of employees, because of course, a, a year of you know, the full-scale invasion will take a, an awful toll on people's nerves, on 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 their mental health in general. How do you work with employees to help them with that? And you know, again,
1: what are the details of this? What do you what do you do? Now we understood that it's really important for every employees to keep their mental health in a good shape. To do two things: first, body, because you should eat well, you should sleep well, you should care about yourself because sometimes it's hard when you don't have electricity actually because in my building when i don't have electricity and have water as well because it's working on electricity and elevators doesn't work i'm living at, at the 27th floor so i have a real powerful legs now but you should care about it and of course we just hired internal psychologists that help employees to deal with their pro- problems because we have sometimes we have meeting with him as a whole and actually everybody can work individually with him because we understand that, understand that it has a huge impact on the whole business when employees can't work and about their mental health but actually i have the second part with our survey that can tell about other companies. Please, please. So so now you've
0: given us you've told us what you do in your company, but for the rest of the IT sector, how, how are they dealing with this?
1: Yes. Actually it was a year when IT companies understand more how mental health is important. They are regular in wasting in it and our survey, economic survey shows that almost ninety-five percent of companies they agree that the mental health affects the company's results and 52% of ANSWER claim that full-scale work costs arise in awareness and action toward investments in psychological health for employee, employees. Nearly 20%, excuse me, 12% of soft companies plan to invest more in psychological health in employees in 2023. And at the same time, it was unusual that millennials were among the most vulnerable age groups to recent events in the country. 36% noticed a deterioration in productivity among employees aged from 27 to 41 years after the start of full-scale invasion. And it's also unusual that Gen Z holds the second place. So uh, 22% of that employees noticed uh, the orientation to in productivity uh, for employees aged from 20 to 26 years. But the most psychologically stable to the latest events are baby boomers. We have around four, 14% of such employees. So uh, the people aged from 42 to 57 uh, were Less uh, disoriented, b- but uh, by that problems. And actually, the, our HR specialists and L&D specialists told that they also, as well, like we at Academia Motion, they invest and spend time for uh, actually we call it war life balance of our em- war life balance of our employees. It's unusual, but it's a common word and they helped to to deal with it. And there is one more thing about one more trend that is a bit unusual in Ukraine, but we have started to using it at our company. Our founder, Vladimir Polo, decided that we are mindful enough as employees that we may stop checking in, that we may stop being in a work in some amount of time, like eight hours. Every employee inside Academy Motion have his own goal, what he should do for a company to grow our company. And that's the reason, because we trust our employees, we stop tracking working time and you can work as many hours as you want to, You, if you can achieve your goals. And the only thing that every worker should do to achieve the goals and you have the full support to, to do it You psychological help, actually help of mentors, help of your team lead and others and everybody is trying to, to achieve the results because actually we have a team now in eight countries, around half of them is still in Ukraine but a lot of people are working and it's hard to con- Control them if if you don't have a goals. But if it's, um, you may understand what company want from you, and it's not a matter of the time. And we have some uh, the same train trend is some IT companies that they trust their employees, and the trust became more and more during the war. Well, thank you very much for that, Andrew. Is there anything else you wanted to mention about
0: about the IT sector, how it's changed, how it's adapting?
1: Yes, yes, I just wanted to say about the women role. Because actually in IT traditionally were a big amount of women, not in developers, but there as well. But now our survey showed that the women role in Ukrainian IT companies became more and more. Uh, I'll, I'll try to find on oh, some numbers. That Lviv IT cluster data show that a lot of men are, are in army now, actually, and we have some, some men that are in our, from our company too, and around 7,000 Ukrainian anti specialists are serving in the army. Uh, and actually, it means that some of the, some of the work are on, on, on women. And at the domestic market of Ukraine, women are getting promoted and running companies in the most difficult times for our country. And according to our data, 51% of us companies promoted women in that year. And 20% of companies, women received C-level positions. And uh, actually, we see that a lot of women deal better with those crises when when they're uh, at work and our survey shows it it's it's great to see to see that and it's great to see the increasing role of, of women at all, all our companies in Ukraine
0: I guess my final question will just go back to something you just mentioned that you have many colleagues now serving in the armed forces. And I just wanted to ask, Do you are you able to stay in touch with them? Or do you hear much f- from them? And do you know what kind of roles they went into? If they're IT specialists, do they end up working in information warfare or drones? Or do, do you have a much of a sense of, of what of what they're doing?
1: Actually, a friend of mine, he was a set of, head of sales at company called SerpStat at our group of companies and he's an officer now around 200 people are in his control and he's in army and actually we are trying as a company to help every our uh, employees that uh, that are is in army now we bought generators we, we bought, bought forms and actually we're just asking every time them how we can help you we feel that we May help them, may help uh, their forces, and and to get their life safer. Because we have stories when that bulletproof vest that we bought saved someone life, and it's not about money, it's about your impact. And actually, I I just wanted to add one more thing about uh, IT companies that are volunteering. Because we have around two hundred thousand people in Ukrainian IT armies that are trying to do something with informational front and a lot of IT companies spend their marketing budget for Ukrainian military for for Ukrainian forces and even our company as i said net group the group of companies we are in Odessa near the black sea and we thought how we can help Ukrainian military forces to keep our city safer so uh, Netpe Group, together with other Ukrainian company Genesis, it, it's a, a global company too. We bought a sea drone for Ukrainian army. Actually, <laughs> uh, we had to spend a lot of money, but but it's really dangerous for Russian ships, and we hope that will help them to keep our city safer.
0: Andrew Bezov, thank you so much for your time.
3: Ukraine: The latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk slash latest Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. as it really helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells
1: and Giles Gere. And today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols.